Now, perhaps you've asked yourself the following question. Why does Grace Lutheran Church congregation exist? I mean, for what purpose? It's not a strange question. Why do we come every Sunday to this beautiful sanctuary? I mean, what is your purpose? To worship? To be fed? To have fellowship with other Christians, your family? To be prepared to go out into the world on a daily basis, strengthened in your faith? Of course, all of these. We are truly blessed and we truly love this place, our congregation, our home in Christ. As you can see from Paul's letter, how many times he says, in Christ Jesus. All congregations ask this question, though, from time to time. It seeks analysis, it seeks investigation, and seeks into values that we hold to be true. You realize that grace has downsized a bit over the last 10 years. But in spite of that, our love and fellowship have not downsized. And the congregation is getting older than it was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, Carl was 87, a young spring chicken, and now 97, and still here and loving it, and we love him. And of course, we would love to see and relive the days with full pews, active boards, Sunday schools, youth groups, and so forth, but but is getting more people to fill the pews the primary reason to reach out with the message of Christ into the community, among friends and among neighbors? Or is there a reason that even surpasses that one? One that is perhaps even more biblical of course we would prefer that when we share Christ's gospel that the lost, when they have been found, would come to know Christ alongside of us in our pew and in our fellowship. But, but if that does not happen, does that mean that we have not been successful? If that doesn't happen, does that mean that we are doing something wrong? It seems at times that we feel that our only purpose might be to fill the pews for Christ. And that can get in the way of God's mission, which is, as we have seen, seek the lost. This is our third Sunday in rediscovering God's mission. And as the former Sundays, you have a little synopsis of this Sunday as well as prayers specifically for the topic on this Sunday. We have seen that Christ's mission was and is to seek the lost, and the mission of the apostles equally was to seek the lost. That's what they were sent out for. And our mission is to seek the lost. That is the most important mission of God that all would come to repentance and know that Christ is the only name given under heaven, as it says in the book of Acts, by whom all mankind is to be saved, and that people believe in him alone. 
That's our goal. And every congregation at some point goes through times of change, through times of reassessment, readjustment, redirection. And these usually arise when downsizing takes place. Most congregations that are large have another type of impetus. Their mere size, their field of influence is broader. They know more people because there are more people to know. Their friends, their neighbors, people that they work with, perhaps. Their field of influence is larger in their community. But when they begin to lose members, the immediate reason is, and reaction, sorry, is, what are we not doing that we should do? And it's a good time for any congregation, big or small, to readjust, to reassess, to investigate. Usually means the need to do something so that the numbers will grow larger again. But when congregations go through times of change and reassessment and adjustment, it does not mean that they are doing something wrong or are not working hard enough. What it does mean is exactly what we are doing, rediscovering, rediscovering God's mission to make sure that our priorities are straight And we are following what God's mission is. That is why we are piecing together a broader type of history of God's mission by looking at scripture and the early church. So let's pick up where we left off last week and move towards looking at how these groups and early churches formed under the apostles. Last week, we learned two very important things in the mission of the church. Do you remember the importance of? That's right, prayer, the importance of prayer, and the importance of offerings. That's right, the importance of offerings. I don't know who said that in the back, but you got it. Prayer and offerings. If you're not going to talk with me, I'm going to talk for you, okay? So either I get an amen or I'm going to say amen, okay? One of those two things. Offerings enable service in the real world. Offerings enable day-to-day action in the ministry of God. Not that mission is money, but the mission is also the offerings of people who dedicate their time to what is going on in the ministry of God. They ministered to the poor in in the New Testament, to those in Jerusalem, to those who were going through famines. Paul brought offerings to other congregations that had nothing. And prayers, as we saw, open the door for Paul's powerful testimony to speak the word of Christ even when he knew he was going to be thrown in jail. So the prayers were for the church that it go forward, and the offerings were enabling as well. You know what? We need to pray. And our prayer should be that God leads us to people who have a need to hear his word, as well as God directs people to us to hear that same word. We also need to pray for the Spirit of God which is in us to empower us and enable us to become involved in the lives of other people to share the faith that we have when we encounter these people. And we need to pray to God that he will direct us to know more fully as a congregation our identity within his mission and the abilities that we can do and that we cannot do 
because all congregations and all people have gifts that the Holy Spirit uses. And to that end, Judy McClendon is starting a prayer group. She texted me this week and says, I feel led to start a prayer group, not a prayer chain, a prayer group that would meet here at specific times. And those who are interested in becoming a part of this prayer group, part of this movement, can talk with her after the service. She's sitting right over there. Judy, wave your hand in case nobody knows you. All right, stand up. Take a bow. No, no. But for now, let's continue looking at the early church and its history and primarily its mission in order to understand our place individually and as a congregation. Well, you know, we did see Jesus, then the apostles, and we've seen that their purpose was to go out with God's message and to seek the lost. Today, we see the first fruits of Paul's ministry and by extension, the other apostles as related in the book of Acts of the Apostles. Now, the book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles. And the first six, seven chapters or so are more dedicated to Peter's ministry. It's more in line with the Jewish part of the outreach. After that, it kind of dedicates itself mostly to Paul, which would be the Gentile part of the outreach. But as the apostles were mobilized, the number of those who came to faith grew. The first priority of Paul and God's mission was to organize themselves and tell about Christ and bring them into fellowship with the other's disciples. John, even at the beginning of his letter, I've mentioned it before, his first letter says, that which we've seen, that which we've touched, that's what, that which we have heard and which we've eaten with, we proclaim to you so that your joy may be complete and you can become one with us and with the Father. That's the whole goal. There were no denominations. There were no actual congregations. There were no conferences. The religion was illegal. In fact, the illegality of it made me think of our Panama mission goal when we were planting churches in Panama for missionaries was to have only house churches because we saw what happened to the Missouri Synod in Cuba, which was started in the early 1930s, and they lost everything come 1959 when Fidel came in. They lost property, and along with that, everybody else. The property was put into museum, radio station, and what all. But churches were allowed and are allowed to exist in Cuba it's just that they couldn't be foreign-supported. They had to be Cubans who were pastors and teachers and had those buildings. So in Panama, we said, we want to be out of here in 10 years, which we're not. In 10 years, and they're going to start and be house churches and hold no property and have the decision-making and everything done by the people themselves. Our first altar was a typing table in the living room of Doña Ismenia's house. Point being, there was no legality in Rome. They were all persecuted. They had to not be seen, yet they grew. The structure that was adopted by the apostles was based on the synagogue. 
Now, the synagogue, let's imagine that this was a synagogue here, and you're all Jewish. And one of you, let's say me, Paul, comes in and preaches and tries to convince you that through the Old Testament, Christ is the Messiah and has come to save you from your sins. And you know all the opposition that was met by Christ in the New Testament. And they tried to stone him and they ultimately killed him, but death couldn't stop him. That's Paul's message. They worshiped together. There were Christians mixed in with Jewish people. And if illegality was not enough, the Jewish people who hated the Christians because they believed in the Messiah also wanted them kicked out of the synagogue. But the Christians existed clandestinely among in the synagogue, but also became a community outside. So the synagogue was a structure that the apostles used, the only one that they knew, in order to preach the kingdom of God. And that's where we read in Acts where it says, with many other words, and this is Peter in this case, Peter testified and exhorted them saying, save yourselves from this perverse generation. And it's shortened, he had a longer sermon. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were won over. Some translations have added, but the Greek is won over, brought into the fellowship. That was the goal through the message of Christ, to bring people in to be part of those who follow Christ. And the community met then around teaching and prayer and fellowship. That was the first structure because Acts goes on to say they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to prayer. Those four things. If you can imagine a group, we would spend all day together. No, we're going to watch football. <laughs> the Bears are playing right now. It's okay, I'm recording it. Priorities, you know. All day together. And they had all things in common. I'm not saying that's what churches today do. But it reminds me in Guatemala and the Indian communities, it was all day. It was an all day event. Pastors got up at 4.30 in the morning. They prayed for three hours for the worship service and those in the community. They then had a three hour worship service. They then had lunch together. Then they had adult and children's Sunday school and dinner together. And then another worship service. And they didn't get paid anything. They were farmers. And they had a third grade level of education. Barely reading and writing. Well, what moved them? The Spirit of God. And the Word of God. To get that Word out. So it was as the Word went out that we read in Romans. Go back, we're not going to read it. Look at all those people. Can you count them? How many co-workers did Paul have? A lot. That's right. You shout it out. A lot. A lot. 
If we assume that Romans was written about 52 AD and Christ died and rose roughly 33, we're talking the book of Acts around 42. This is 18, 19 years after the apostles were sent out to preach, sent out to share that good news. And look at all the people who are with him, men and women who in Paul's case met in homes, met people who were there. They even had elders who were then ordained, meaning they placed their hands on them and sent them out. Some high officials, priests as well, priests meaning the Jewish priests. As the community of believers grew, another structure had to be used. 3,000? Not small. Where are we going to put them all? Well, don't put them anywhere. Turn them loose. And that is what we read in Acts 6. So the twelve called the whole group of disciples together and said it's not right for us to neglect the word of God and wait on tables. Wait on tables is deacon. That's where we get our word deacon from. Diaconia is a deacon really waited on tables. But carefully select from among you brothers, seven men who are filled with the Holy Spirit and all well attested to that we will devote, we, the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word and the others on the organization within the congregation. The structure was chosen. It came a time and a point when something new had to happen. And the structure that was chosen was done in order to effectively carry out the ministry of the early church. So here in this, now we start to get involved in other names and other titles, but they weren't titles in the New Testament. They were descriptions that developed as the word went out. We have the word apostle, which we saw when Jesus sent out 72 people. He called them apostles because apostle means sent out. The apostles were chosen specifically to go out as missionaries. They went where nothing was. There was no church. There was no believers. That was there. And the 12 apostles that were part of the inner circle were 12 because precisely that was the number needed for the Jewish synagogue. And so that number was a cultural number. But then we see we had deacons then. It got so large, we're wearing ourselves out. Let's have deacons take care of what's going on in the church. And mainly the first church ministries were to widows and the elderly. And that was the first ministries within the church. So the deacons became known as service. And from deacon, we get the word ministry. Ministry is service in the broad sense of the term. And as a community of believers developed, Paul chose men to lead the group before he went to another area. We saw that in our text too. Paul's going all around and he's saying, Lee, I want you to lead this group. You're going to be the elder in this group of believers. And then he and the other apostle who was with him would lay their hands on Lee and say a blessing that would put them in charge. In charge, not meaning to do everything, but in charge for the spiritual welfare while the deacons were doing ministry in the congregation. 
So Lee and others like him would have been chosen. So there were elders and there were deacons. Paul was smart because Paul grew up in Antioch, uh, Paul grew up in Tarsus. He didn't grow up in Rome. He didn't grow up in Spain. He didn't grow up in Asia Minor. But he left people in charge who knew the territory. They were the ones who knew other people. They were the ones who had relatives in the neighboring synagogues. Paul said, you have the faith, reach your people. So Paul was smart. The elders, and they're also called presbyters, were then called overseers, which in Greek gives us the name bishop. And we'll get into that at another time. It's not Roman Catholic bishop. It means overseeing. In the Eastern Church, which we know as the Orthodox Church today, uses the name presbyter. And the Western Church uses the name bishop in its political organization. But a bishop was to, or an overseer was to oversee the action of a number of churches in a given area. So there was a structure. But it all was based out of the structure that was in Jerusalem. From our cultural perspective today, our ecclesiastical structure is not too much different. The point is that from a simple mission directive to go and make disciples, the apostles grew to have a mission objective. They had sort of a mission statement, a statement that reflected that the community of believers was made and active in God's mission. These weren't clubs. They didn't keep tabs on membership. These were faith and allegiance to Christ was the marking point. They were ecclesial, meaning ecclesia, which is the name for the church, meaning called out of the world. Ek from kaleo called, called out of the world to be in Christ. So there were cultural nuances that we do not do today. We reflect on the first century church to understand their fire, to understand what was the purpose of their witness, their statement in mission, and their reason for forming a community of believers. But now we have a challenge. We can ask as a congregation, what is our mission? And some might say to fill the pews as they were before and keep the congregation going, which I agree would be great and amazing. But if that is our mission statement, our guiding statement of why we exist, then we are selfish with God's mission directive. Selfish in our goal because it's too narrow for God. God's mission is to reach out with his message in spite of the fact that whatever ministry we do might not meet our expectations as they relate directly to the local congregation. You see, what determines success in the eye of God is not success in numbers, but faithfulness to his call. That we go out, that we share his love, that we share his forgiveness, calling people to faith in Christ through word and deed, wherever it might be. Success of a ministry or a project is not merely determined by the number of people who come in. Like we said before, that would be great. We sow the gospel, but sometimes someone else reaps. For example, we met on dance floors in Panama, in the rural areas. Just a slab of cement, 
and a thatched roof. And that's where we met for two years in a community and had over 60 people. My goal as an LCMS ministry or missionary was to start and plant a church. But a church was never planted there. There was never a building. There was never a constitution that was written. There was never an assembly with a president or with a deacon or with an elder. Well, there was an elder. But they all congregated together based on their faith. It was never Lutheran. It was a church. And when I had to leave that area to go to another area, even though they considered themselves Roman Catholic culturally, they knew the scriptures backwards and forwards because we'd been through them a number of times. So while I was trying to develop a church, an organized church, they were still touched by God's message and still saved by faith. His design, my expectations weren't met, but his word went out. Let's take our examples. Backpacks, Thanksgiving baskets, Christmas baskets, farmer's market. What have we not done? And we say, but we are not getting people into coming into our congregation. So are we doing something wrong? No, we're not doing something wrong. Are we being successful? I don't think it's worth it. God's word going out is not worth it. That's the first question. God's word never returns to him void, as it says in Isaiah but accomplishes that for which it has been set out. And we don't know what time or when or how in a person's life that we give a track to or we give words of encouragement to that they will remember and say, oh yeah, I can't remember who gave this to me, but I want to investigate it further. We never know. We never know. And so... We cannot say that we were not successful. We were faithful, and that is what Jesus says. Faithful to his calling. You see, through scripture and Acts, the text never says that the apostles added that day. God added that day through his word. God added that day, not their strategy, not their success story, not their money, not their projects. It was the word active in the people's lives. Well, what guided the church in the structure of the early church is a little different today as well. Now, most in our culture, we use mission statements. We use mission statements. But what happens in a lot of cases that we have a mission statement, and that's it, and that's where it stays as a statement, a mission statement. Grace has a mission statement. Do you know what it is? It's on the back of your bullet. God created Grace Lutheran Church to glorify him by engaging all people in a life-giving, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, theoretically, everything that we do as a congregation or individually within the church should go by our guided lines, guidelines right here. What we do, does it glorify God? Does it engage people in a life-giving, 
intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Now that was chosen, I don't know how many years ago, and, and, and what all. But a mission statement can be simple, and it can guide, not be put in a box and close the lid, but a reason to motivate to go out and remember what our existence is and what our purpose is, individually and as a congregation. Now, I'd like to encourage you, on the back, which is why it's blank, to write down, sketch out what a mission statement might be that you think might be good for the church. Now, put it on a different piece of paper for next Sunday and put it in the offering plate. Don't put your name on it because we're going to look at and entertain different types of mission statements that will reflect what our goal is. Now, we won't do it as a congregation. I want to form a group. Anyone who wants to have input and wants to meet and be a part of deciding what our mission statement, our mission goal should be, and stated in simple terms, meet with me afterwards or just let an elder know. We've got Judy, we have Karen, we've got Margie, we've got Sophie, and we will find a time to meet. And I think that would be a good idea. There are many examples of mission statements that go today. But the mission statement should be that we are sent out to mission and witness to God's word. Amen. Amen. If you're interested in knowing more about Jesus Christ or about Grace Lutheran Church, please go to www gracealoneonline.org You can email us at gracealoneonline at gmail.com